What you're about to listen to is nothing but the blathering of two morons. It is not a legal opinion. Nor is it the opinion of our employers. None whatsoever. Is it advice of any variety? It's not. Especially not of a legal variety. Well, it could be advice of a dating variety. Yeah, we do. I don't, do I don't, I don't want dating to, advice. I don't want to limit Dennis ourselves. Is, uh, yeah, as seeing that both of us have been on a date. <laughs> You're making 20, some assumptions. Twenty plus years ago. Yeah, maybe. It's been that long. This episode of the hostile work environment is intended for mature audiences. That means Dennis can't listen. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Inappropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello and welcome. You're back with the Hostile Work Environment. I'm Dennis. I am Mark. And you are funky. And I have a bunch. You do. That at least, at least be, we crack we crack ourselves. That's got to be the best intro we've done all morning. Hey, yeah, yeah. So, uh, how are things? Uh, fine. Um, it's one of those. I'm not going to pretend that we're not recording right after we just recorded moments. Oh, I was I was totally going to say, how about that Kavanaugh outcome? Yeah, how about that Kavanaugh? I have no idea. We have no did, idea. What did you know the FBI investigation was going to go there? Yeah, no, I had no idea. And what about Jeff Flake? I mean, I didn't see that coming. No, no, I, I didn't see any of it coming. No. Shocked. Shocked. Just have, have, proud to be American. Yeah, we have no idea what, what's no, going to happen. No, no, or no clue. What, what happened. No. Because, yeah, we're trying to be efficient here. Yeah. Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's up? I got a, a couple of cases for us to talk about today. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'll start uh, with one question for you. Um, I guess I got a couple of questions for you to start. Yeah. Do you think that the law, the discrimination laws treat religion and race particularly differently? It's a very open-ended question. Do discrimination laws treat religion and race differently? Um, generally when it comes to discrimination, I think they treat them somewhat the same, except for a couple distinctions I can think of. What are those distinctions? One is what we call a BFOQ or Mm a bona fide occupational qualification. Yeah. Which we've talked about. Which we've talked about in the past is the basic idea that if you are hiring for a rabbi, you probably want a Jewish one. Right. But you can have BFOQs outside of the religious context as well. Right. But we rarely see a racial BFOQ, although we had an episode where, where we, we discussed. talked a lot about that with the musical Hamilton. Right. Okay. So but those got, are rare. Those are rare. So, okay. So you've got the BFOQ point. What? What's another? Do you, had, did you, you said you had a couple points. I don't, the I don't other know. one is that... In the context of religion in the workplace, employees can ask for and receive accommodations for their religious Uh, beliefs. I've never heard of anybody asking for and receiving accommodations for their race. 
Yeah, that's where we're going to go here. It's really? A racial accommodation? No, no but just highlighting oh, those differences. Um, and in doing so, I think it might be good to start this conversation also by asking, can you, We and I think we've mentioned this once before or twice before on the podcast, what's the difference between disparate treatment and disparate impact, okay. which are two different ways that you can bring claims under the discrimination laws. Right. Disparate treatment is when, in this context, an employer treats people in different groups differently and usually intentionally. Like, I'm not going to hire that person because of their skin color or their sex or their religion. You're making a conscious decision to discriminate. Disparate impact means I'm going to implement this policy. It's facially neutral. It doesn't say anything about race, religion, skin color, any of that stuff. I implement that policy, but it has the perhaps completely unintended effect of discriminating against people on those bases. And, you know, the example that I can think of right off the top of my head would be a f otherwise facially neutral policy that says in order to work here, you need to be able to lift 80 pounds. Mm. More men than women would be able to meet that lifting requirement. And thus, your policy could have a disparate impact against women. True. Then you'd have to look to see. Is it a BFOQ? Right. Do you really need to be able to lift 80 pounds? All right. So in in leading in with that, and that's that was very well defined. Oh, why? Thank um, you. Making those distinctions. Um, you'd almost think I did this for a living. You would, which we all know better. But yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to focus on disparate treatment. Okay. And not on disparate impact. And I want to, there's a, there's a reason why I'm doing that, which you'll see as the case, the first case we're going to talk about kind of plays out in front of us. All righty. Um, so this first case I want to talk about, my wife forwarded it to me yesterday while I was standing at my daughter's soccer game. Oh, good um, job, Tracy. Uh, go Skyline Eagles. I hear they're like 5-0. and oh. We won 6 nothing yesterday. And I my hear it's kids. in a yeah. league in which records and scores are not actually kept. Generally except not, except by, by me. Except by Mark. I just needed to point no, that out. We are a tiny little school out in the middle of nowhere. And for years, I've gone to these soccer matches. And we're always playing kids that are way bigger than us, um, which is still true now. Um, and for years, we never won a game. And then yeah. last year, we started winning a few. And this year, we haven't. We've won every every game so far. Wow. And yesterday, we won. And these girls are like twice as big as my kids. And it's like, we're yeah. talking about somebody who was a guest on the show. Yes. Yes. Uh, what, what was it, like two episodes, two episodes ago, ago, three yeah. episodes back? So, yeah. um, so you all know her. Yeah. Good on her. Um, so anyway, so my wife forwarded me this while I was standing out at the soccer match. And kind of I, I believe it's been making some rounds, which was interesting because it's, it's actually not that recent a case. But there oh. was some outrage around this case. And I understand why. Yeah. But when you actually look at the procedural history of the case – it's one of those that's like, oh, that's interesting, and it's maybe not what we thought it was. So I'm going to just tell you a few of the facts here. These are very long cases. Both of these cases we're going to be talking about are, are big, long, complicated cases. And oh, so, well, by all means, read them for yo, us. Yo, I'm going to read the whole thing. Maybe not. No. But um, 
if you were to go and find these cases and read, they're going to be far more intricate than I'm going to get into today. But there's a couple of interesting points around them that I thought right. in comparing and contrasting them were interesting. Cool. So this first case that we want to talk about is uh, the the employer is called Catastrophe Management Solutions, which I kind of want to um, know. Uh, that sounds like Catastrophe Management yeah, Solutions. Yeah, but they provide customer service support to insurance companies. Oh, okay. So it's not as much fun as it sounds. But it, it, it sounds like a great title, but in, in effect, they run a, a call center or something. Right. So we're going to call them CMS, which is a claims processing company located in Mobile, Alabama. Oh, all right. Have you ever been to Alabama? Well, what happens when the hurricane hits Mobile? Then we're all screwed. We're apparently. screwed because there's nobody there to manage uh, <laughs> our catastrophe wouldn't, services. Wouldn't you want to locate that somewhere that has no catastrophes? Right. Yeah, no, I don't know. Not in like, you know, Hurricane Alley. Any, yeah. Anyway, please so, continue. So again, they provide customer service support to insurance companies. In 2010, CMS announced that it was seeking candidates with basic computer knowledge and professional phone skills, uh, which would cut Dennis out. Um, Entirely. To work as customer service representatives. CMS's customer service representatives do not have contact with the public as they handle telephone calls in a large call room. Um. Which then gets us to our plaintiff in this case, yeah, uh, Ms. Jones. Ms. Jones, who is black, uh, we're not just saying that in a vacuum, it's relevant, uh, completed Oh, an, you're not like my racist mother. Right. Okay. I'm not just pointing it out for the sake of pointing it out. It right. is relevant for the case. Okay. Completed an online employment application for the customer service position in May of 2010. And she was selected for an in-person interview. She arrived at CMS for her interview several days later, dressed in a blue business suit, and importantly, yeah, are you paying attention here? I you, am totally you texting paying on your phone. Here. Yeah, uh, I, I we got a tweet. I need to. Oh, you're you know, you're like engage. tweeting in the middle of this. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Um, importantly, she is wearing her hair in short dreadlocks. You just stole my middle segment. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Same case? We'll find out. Keep going. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. After waiting with a number of other applicants, uh, Ms. Jones interviewed with a company representative to discuss the requirements of the position. A short time later, uh, Ms. Jones and the other selected applicants were brought into a room as a group. CMS, uh, CMS's human resources manager, Jeannie Wilson, who is white. And Genie. Yeah, it's the same case. Informed the applicants in the room, including Miss Jones, that they had been hired. Uh, Ms. Wilson uh, also told uh, the successful applicants that they would have to complete scheduled lab tests and other paperwork before beginning their employment. And she offered to meet privately with anyone who had a conflict with CMS's schedule. As of this time, no one had commented on Miss Jones's hair. Nope. Following the meeting... Ms. Jones met with Ms. Wilson privately to discuss a scheduling conflict she had and to request the ch uh, to change her lab test date. Ms. Wilson told uh, Ms. Jones that she could return at a different time for the lab test. Before Mrs. Uh, before Ms. Jones got up to leave, however, uh, Ms. Jones, uh, sorry, Ms. Wilson asked her whether she had her hair in dreadlocks, which you couldn't tell. Yeah, I. It was weird. Um, maybe she had it, you know, covered. I, I don't. I don't know. know. Uh, Ms. Jones said yes. 
And Ms. Wilson uh, replied that CMS could not hire her with dreadlocks. When Ms. Jones asked what the problem was, Ms. Wilson said, they tend to get messy. Although I'm not saying yours are, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Ms. Wilson told Ms. Jones about a male applicant who was asked to cut off his dreadlocks in order to obtain a job with CMS. And did he? Doesn't say. Oh, okay. When Ms. Jones said that she would not cut her hair, Ms. Wilson told her that CMS could not hire her and asked her to return the paperwork she had been given. Ms. Jones did as requested and left. And now here's an important part. Yeah. Well, that's all important. But at the time, CMS had a race-neutral grooming policy. Of course. Which read as follows. All personnel are expected to be dressed and groomed in a manner that pro- uh, that projects a professional and business-like image while adhering to company and industry standards and or guidelines. Hairstyle should reflect a business-slash-professional image. No excessive hairstyles or unusual colors are acceptable. Okay. Does that mean dreadlocks are an excessive hairstyle? I think they would say yes. That CMS would say yes, or at least this this one hiring manager. Okay. So, let's get into some of the procedural history here. Those are the facts. The EEOC filed suit on behalf of Ms. Jones. Exactly. The district court dismissed the complaint under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure on 12B6 motion, which is just a motion to dismiss. Right, saying you don't have a claim. Because it did not plausibly allege intentional racial discrimination by CMS against Ms. Jones. Hmm. And the EEOC then appealed that. Okay. And now we are in front of what quarter are we in? Are we in the 10th Circuit, I think? I believe it is the 11th. No, the 11th Circuit. Of course, Alabama. Yes, it's the 11th Circuit. The other case we're going to talk about, I think, comes out of the 10th. Um, so here's what the court starts to say. Um, the court sides with CMS. Right. And I think that's where some of the kind of outrage that maybe has been bubbling around about this is coming from, given that it strikes me as something that's going to to be impactful against African-American applicants or employees to apply this policy Mm. even in a neutral way. Right. Because I would say that you're probably more likely to have more black employees with dreads than white employees with dreads, unless maybe you're in Portland. I was just about to say, I think if you did a census of dreadlock wearing in the Portland area, you would get more white hippies with dreadlocks than any other group. That may also just be a numbers game here. It could be a numbers game. I'm going to yeah, take a wild guess. As we live guess. in one of the whitest cities, if not the whitest city in the country. And the most hippieish city mm-hmm. in the country where white people wearing dreadlocks is just a thing. But this is Alabama. And I'm going to guess it's a little more you know, racially diverse than Portland. Okay. So in going back to what we talked about at the beginning, in your estimation, yeah. Would this be a successful disparate treatment claim or a successful disparate impact claim? Mm. Which one has a better chance of working if you're her and the EEOC? Yeah. So I would look at that 
And I almost think this is a better disparate impact claim. I agree. Because if I'm looking at disparate treatment, what I'm saying is you have interpreted this policy, which is facially neutral. You've chosen to interpret that policy in a way that is discriminatory against African-Americans. And you're targeting African-Americans using this grooming policy. And that's more impact than treatment. No, I'm saying that if I am doing this intentionally to discriminate oh, against black sorry, folks. I misunderstood you. That's intent. That's, that's intent, right. That's disparate treatment. Right. Especially, you know, if this, let's take this out of Mobile where there's probably no white people with dreadlocks. Let's put it in Portland where, you know, there's plenty. If you were running a call center in Portland and there's all kinds of white people with dreadlocks running around and then you told the black applicant she can't have dreadlocks, then boom, you're, you're toast, then, right? right? You're well, done. But if, you're, if if your assumption is correct, I believe it is, that if you go to Mobile, Alabama, not Portland, Oregon, that most of the people with dreadlocks are going to be African-American and then you put in a no dreadlocks policy, it's going to have a disparate impact against African-Americans. What about on a disparate treatment uh, theory? How do you think this holds up there? I think you got to show that the policy was intended to discriminate against African-Americans if you want to go disparate treatment. Fair. Okay. Otherwise, so, you're really looking at a disparate impact case. So I think the court here agrees with you, except there's a problem. In pleading the case... Right. The EEOC specifically said, we're only proceeding under a disparate treatment and we are disclaiming any disparate impact theory. Well, that was just dumb. That was dumb. Right. And in the summary here, I'm not going to go into the full discussion because it goes on for 35 pages. The EEOC conflates, this is the court speaking, conflates the distinct Title VII theories of disparate treatment, the sole theory on which it is proceeding, and disparate impact the theory it has expressly disclaimed. Why would you do that? Because you're dumb. I, Occ Occam's razor suggests you do that because you're dumb. That seems to be the simplest That's the only thing I can think of here. Like, and I'm trying to think of any case where if I'm the plaintiff in that case, I'm not putting forth all the potential theories I can yeah. to try to succeed. And why would I specifically disclaim the one? Now, Maybe they were thinking about it in some way that we can't conceive of at the moment. But why would you disclaim the one that's going to work? I thought, is there some sort of procedural reason where they failed to exhaust the administrative remedies? And then I realized it's the administrative body that's bringing the claim. So yeah. that can't be it. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a mystery to me, but it speaks a little bit to how the court arrives at its conclusion here in siding with the employer when the plaintiff and the administrative body representing that plaintiff fail to proceed under one of the theories that I think is most likely to work here. Now, here's, here's the other interesting piece of this is that the court then goes into a disparate treatment discussion. Okay. And this was, this was an area I'm going to admit I'm maybe a little bit behind on or I'm not quite as up to speed on in, in 
my thinking around this, maybe just because I've never had a case where this comes up, but they say our precedent holds that Title VII prohibits discrimination based on immutable traits. Right. Such as the color of your skin or... Not the style of your hair. Right. So they're saying that the complaint here does not assert that dreadlocks, though culturally associated with race, are an immutable characteristic of black persons. And that is... They have several other ways in which they get to their decision here. But that's the one I wanted to talk about. Um, I find that very interesting. I find it interesting and I also find it shallow, for lack of a better term. Agreed. Because I look at it as, I look at it as, sometimes we look at certain things that are mutable characteristics as proxies for the immutable characteristics. If, right, if right. I'm, if I discriminate against people, not based on the color of their skin, but a hairstyle that is associated with people with that skin color, it's acting as a proxy for my discrimination based on race. Don't you think? I, I agree. And yet, that's not how the case law has developed. At least not in the 11th Circuit. At least not in the 11th Circuit. I question whether that would have the same outcome if we were in the 9th. In the 9th Circuit, right? So, given that outcome, okay, in this case, uh, let me see if I can find it here. This case, for anybody who's interested, is the EEOC versus Catastrophe Management Solutions. This came out of the 11th Circuit, and it was September of 2016. Yeah. It's interesting that it's, it's funny it's bubbled up because it's bubbling the, up. Like again. I said, this was the case I was right. going to talk about for yeah. my second segment. Yeah, it's but been coming up on social media and in other places. Uh, you're doing a better recently. job than I would have done. So. <laughs> um, but let me ask a question. What might or might not have changed if Ms. Jones had her hair in dreadlocks because it was a religious belief? Aha, that would have changed things. So let's assume that. For the sake of argument, Ms. Jones was a Rastafarian and came to work saying, I need an accommodation for my hairstyle despite your policy because it is an expression of my religious belief in Rastafarianism. Yeah. Then you have to take a look to see whether accommodating that hairstyle could possibly be an undue hardship The standards of which, by the way, for the record, very different than what is an undue hardship under the disability laws. Right. Usually it is a it is a it is easier to show an undue hardship when it comes to religious accommodation quite a bit on this. Right. So we're not going to belabor that point. But then you would look at it and say, like, okay, the policy says, you know, just to summarize, have a professional hairstyle is now allowing somebody to bring in their dreadlocks going to you know pose some sort of you know radical danger to workplace order and morale i think the answer to that's probably going to be no I, I and miss jones is going to get to have her dreadlocks right so let's talk about this in the context of a different case okay this one was a pretty prominent case um it's about our um Plaintiff here was Samantha Alof. Alof? Alof? I'm not sure how to pronounce aloof? it. Aloof? Not aloof. I don't, that's not how I would pronounce it. But uh, she's a practicing Muslim. 
Okay. Who uh, I'm trying to follow my notes. <laughs> who? Uh, sorry. Yes. Who consistent with her understanding of her religion's requirements wears a headscarf? Indeed. Okay. Um, the respondent in this case is Abercrombie and Fitch. Really? Yes. I think I remember this case. Well, that's probably... By the way, Abercrombie and Fitch sounds like a law firm, but they're not. They're actually the the clothing retailer known for having oft-risque advertisements and catalogs. Yes. So as described by the case, they operate several lines of clothing stores, each with its own quote-unquote style. Oh, indeed. (laughs) Consistent with the image Abercrombie seeks to project for each store, the company imposes a look policy. That's what they call it. Look, capital look look policy that governs its employees' dress. The look policy prohibits uh, caps, quote unquote caps. Caps. Okay. A term the policy does not define as too informal for Abercrombie's desired image. So Samantha applies for a position with Abercrombie's store uh, and was interviewed by Heather Cook, the store's assistant manager. Heather. Using Abercrombie's uh, ordinary system for evaluating applicants, Cook gave Samantha a rating that qualified her to be hired. Cook was concerned, however that Samantha's headscarf would conflict with the store's look policy. Cook sought the store manager's guidance to clarify whether the headscarf was a forbidden cap. When this yielded no answer, Cook turned to Randall Johnson, the district manager. Cook informed Johnson uh, that she believed Samantha wore her headscarf because of her faith, which is an important point. They believed that that was why. Gotcha. They didn't know, but they believed They didn't bother to ask. Okay, but they they and that's important because in a footnote it says later that if there was no reason to know at all and there's no reason to think that there was a belief, then that puts this in a different kind of category. Right. But the fact that they saw it and believed that that was the reason why is very important. Uh, And I'm sure you can figure out why, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Right. Johnson told Cook that Samantha's headscarf would violate the look policy, as would all other headwear, religious or otherwise, and directed Cook not to hire Samantha. The EEOC then sued Abercrombie on Samantha's behalf, uh, claiming that the refusal to hire violates Title VII. Uh, Interesting procedural history. The district court granted the EEOC summary judgment on the issue of liability, which is interesting for... That's rare. Very rare. Uh, and held um, on the, so it held it on the issue of liability. Then there was a, a, a trial on damages and awarded $20,000. The Tenth Circuit then reversed uh, and awarded Abercrombie summary judgment. It concluded that ordinarily an employer cannot be liable under Title VII for failing to accommodate a religious practice uh, until the applicant or employee provides the employer with actual knowledge of the need for the accommodation. We are now in front of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Yeah. In this case, which was decided in 2014, and they reverse it back again. On that theory that we just talked about, which is it doesn't require absolute knowledge, but if there's a belief by the employer that it's for a religious purpose, that's imputing that knowledge there when it comes 
time to have that discussion around the accommodation. Okay. And that's most of what I want to talk about with this case. An interesting side note on this yeah. case, which will speak to some of the partisanship going on right now. This case was decided 8-1. Wow. And who do you think wrote this opinion? Clarence Thomas. No, he was the one. <laughs> I was being sarcastic. But Antonin Scalia wrote this opinion. Wow. And for the very reasons that you just talked about, because of the religious aspect, because in, in a lot of ways, these two cases that we're talking about are very similar. They are very similar. But because this one has to do with religion and accommodation, it and comes not to race. And not race, it comes to a different outcome. And there's an interesting, I'm reading this out of the summary, the abstract yeah. for the Supreme Court case. Okay. An employer may not make an employee an applicant's religious practice, confirmed or otherwise, a factor in employment decisions. Title VII contains no knowledge requirement. Furthermore, Title VII's definition of religion clearly indicates that failure to accommodate challenges can be brought as disparate treatment claims. And Title VII gives favored treatment to religious practices rather than demanding that religious practices be treated no worse than other practices. Wow. That's fascinating to it me. It is fascinating. And I guess— we, We'd all best—y'all need Jesus. Right. I mean, so— so Because the law favors you if you got G or, well, Mohammed, or Muhammad. Or, or whatever your bona fide actual religious belief happens to be. The flying spaghetti monster flying in spaghetti my case. spaghetti monster in both of our cases. Right. Uh, so here's kind of the question I want to put out there. These are two cases that to me are very similar in terms of the facts. But one is based on race and one's based on religion. Completely different outcomes. Completely different outcomes. Dennis. Do you think that's right? I actually don't. I disagree with I disagree with this. And here's the thing. I in a funny kind of way, I kind of disagree with both. Hey, here's why. I I think the no dreadlock rule is just plain up race discrimination. Uh, yeah. I have a hard <laughs> like, time come with on. that. Even if it's facially neutral, unless you're in like Portland, it's got it couldn't be clear who's being targeted with that. And I'm not sure I disagree with the outcome mm -hmm. of the headscarf case. But there's a piece to it that I'm uncomfortable with. One is the idea that we're going to prioritize religion. That's that's where I got held up here. That's where I look at these and I, I'm like, like, why is the religious belief more important than a cultural identity or right. whatever happens to be which is which is bound up in race. Yeah. Like, I struggled with that reading these two cases. Like here's where it becomes personal for me. I have I am not an observant Jew. But I have certain cultural identities that flow from a background in Judaism. Are the are they religious? No, no, but you you do but a I, really mean annual reading of the Latka that wouldn't stop screaming. Right. And if you took that away from me, I would be quite offended. You know? Why what I I struggle I understand the legal rationale behind these cases. I get it. I like get I get it. it. I get it. But when I actually look at what happened and these two individuals 
I have a really hard time distinguishing between the two. Same here. So anyway, I don't have any answers for it. Me neither. But you I all now know the law, so you'd best follow it. Follow it. And you'd best find religion because, you know, it's the only way you're going to get a fair shake from the law. Because there's not going to be an accommodation piece on the race side. Yeah. Like, now, if I want Yom Kippur off, somebody's going to go like, yeah, you non-kosher keeping lapsed pseudo-Jew, go away. And and I think that's now legal. (laughs) Thank you, Antonin Scalia, you jackass anyway fascinating yeah anyway yeah. i thought that was fun and you did a far better job of it than i was gonna do i was just gonna go like hey get the 11th circuit they said you can't have dreadlocks right what about white hippies yeah. what? but and now you know why though right like now getting, that's why. why i saw that article and i was gonna just include that for a second segment like you think you were thinking of it and then i was like you know what? i'm gonna pull the case i'm actually gonna go pull the good case and job read it. well done i am humbled good on that note <laughs> We'll be right back. (laughs) So now that Mark has, I was going to say shamefully stolen, but there was no shame. That was a really well done segment. But Mark did steal my idea for a middle segment. Um, I now have a substitute middle segment. Also provided by Marnie. But I have a different take on it than I thought you were going to have a take on. Good. Well, I wasn't really going to have a take on it. I was just going to read it. You're just going to read it. But I have a question for you because I think there's actually a really interesting legal issue in this case. Okay. You just thought it was going to be salacious and funny. And I found a legal issue because, you know, smart and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So here's my question. If... In the hiring process, you make some sort of insulting racist remark to the applicant. Can you then reject that applicant for the non-discriminatory reason that you have now so badly insulted them that it would be awkward to work with them? I knew that was going to be your question. Oh, because I've read, I've, I know the story. Why don't you tell the story? Why don't you tell the story? Why don't you tell the story? Because I, I, it doesn't come in a vacuum. And I I think it's a really worthy question, but I think you got to know the facts behind it. Because this happened. All right. This happened in America in 2018. The wife of a Manhattan financier. Hired a nanny for her baby, but then realized that the nanny was African-American and fired off a text saying, no, with many O's, no, another black person. I'm going to take a wild guess that she meant to send that to her husband, but she didn't. She sent it to the nanny, the applicant. That's that's what the, she meant to send it to the husband. Okay. Yeah. Then... She went back to the nanny and immediately fired her, saying she now felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. The nanny is now suing the couple for discrimination and seeking compensation for the wages she was promised, which was 350 bucks a day for a six-month live-in gig. That adds up. 
So the wife in this case is saying, I'm not a racist. Of course not. We're not racist people. We simply thought we were getting a Filipino. And then, that matters. And that matters, you know, because, you know. But here's what I find interesting. But would you put your children in the hands of someone you've been rude to, even if it was by mistake? Your newborn baby? Come on! Uh, so, I think, I think there's probably a better way to handle it. Well, first off, don't be a racist. Right? Might don't be a good say way the to, racist thing or think it. the racist thing in the first place. And, but and if you're going to be a racist, be careful before you text your racism. Right. You know. And then if you're still uncareful texting your racism, what do you do? So here's what I would have done in that case. Not that I think I would ever find myself in that position, but if I did, <laughs> hire a lot of nannies. Have you? <laughs> Actually, several, but um, that's right. You kind of did. Yeah, we we had some winners. Um, you had twins. Yeah, you so, didn't hire a live-in six-month name. No, we didn't do that. Just kind of part-time. Yeah, ten-hour-a-week kind of thing. Mama's but, helper kind yeah, of nannies, not yeah. like nanny nanny. But well, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, here's what I would do: I would sit down with her and I would say, "Look, what I sent you was absolutely inappropriate." And I apologize, right? So start off with your apology, yeah, right? And then say, I've offered you the job and that stands. Do you still want the job? I'll understand if you don't, but I'd really like you to stay on. And I hope that you take my apology with all sincerity because that's how I mean it, right? And then if that person feels that they can't do the job and work for you because of what you said, that's okay. But don't fire them because of it. No. Or don't refuse them a job or anything. Right. And, you know. I mean, yes, that puts it back on her. But, yeah, there's a legitimate thing there in that, like, are we going to be able to continue to work together after this horrible thing I did? Right. And there's a way to own that and have the appropriate conversation around it. And not do what these geniuses did. Fire and say, well, we now we know we couldn't work together. Good point. I think you're absolutely right. And while this case happened in the context of, you know, just individuals who are out hiring nannies, it's not like they had a talent acquisition department that they were engaging right. in a select interviewing process that had been vetted and bias tested. And then had HR go in and clean up their mess. I can easily imagine something like this happening. And in fact, know of cases where something like this has happened in places that do have all of those resources. It's not uncommon that somebody says a stupid thing during the interviewing process. You and I have interviewed people. You and I have interviewed people together. I'm sure you could verify. I've said no shortage of stupid thing during the interviewing process. uh, That's both of us. Right. And so we always had to, you know, make offers to unqualified people that we said stupid things to. Because of all the offensive things we did during the interview. it was terrible. Um, But that's how you fix it. Right. Whether you're the wife of a Manhattan financier, or however that term is pronounced. I want to make it French. I want to call it financier. Financier. Um, Financier. 
financier. I think that's how. Money guy, banker. I like. It's hard for me with French-looking words. Like, can we just call him banker? I lived in St. Louis for a while, where all the streets and everything's named after French people, and then they don't pronounce it that way, and it 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 kind of broke me. So I I I think, but I think it's financier. Financier. I'm 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 good with banker, frankly. Banker is fine. You know, if you're the wife of the rich banker and you're out hiring nannies. Or whether you know you're the head of HR of a Fortune 500 company, you're still going to encounter this from time to time, and there's a right way to fix it, and there's a wrong way. Right. And this is the wrong way. This is the wrong way. Yeah. Very good. Interesting case. Yeah. Um, just as a sort of closing remark, a little quote from the husband. I'm not someone who has millions of dollars lying around just to pay people off that are coming after me for extortion, fumed the banker, who, by the way, used to run one of the United Kingdom's biggest brokerage firms. Sounds like he does have millions of dollars lying around for everything else, though. Yeah. He continues, my wife was two months off having a baby suffering from a very difficult situation. You're going to go after somebody like that? That's not a very nice thing to do. But being racist is totally cool. That, that's fine. I mean, if, if you know, you just had a baby two years ago, I mean, by all means, join the clan at that point. That's right. totally it, fine. You'll cloud your judgment that much. Yeah. Exactly. Apparently. Yeah. On that cheery note, let's take a break. We'll come back and Mark will uh, drain our story bank down to zero. Or coming close. You're back with the hostile work environment, and it's time for Uncle Mark to read us a story. I have a good one today. So I've heard. Um, This individual sent us two stories. Oh. And I'm just going to read the first. Yeah, because we're running low. We're running low. We and need also, to rash, ration uh, our stories. They're both long enough that they, they sit well on their own. Okay, so, good. Story number one is called Can't Help You. I love it when they title the story. Yeah, title your stories when you send yeah. them. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, also make up fake names like, you know, yeah, Bobby well, from Baltimore. Yeah, well, or, this, this person indicate don't use my name, but you can say that I'm in a flyover state. Oh, so Nelly from Nebraska, Nelly from Nebraska, or Florence from Flyover State. That was y- good. Yeah, I like Nelly better. But okay. go ahead, tell oh, the Nelly. story. All right. Several years ago, I was leading HR for a manufacturing company. We had a great collegial culture and a well-trained group of managers and leaders. Uh, oh, this might have a couple of like racy terms in it just yeah so did last week's episode and i told there was an f-bomb that was completely unwarned i might have to go back and record a a warning for last week's episode entirely up to you um so consider yourself warned now all right um so we had a great collegial collegial culture and a well-trained group of managers and leaders however as these things happen the banter could get a bit blue quote unquote blue in the warehouse yes Meaning racy, racy, dirty. Yes. Uh, the manager knew the lines and liked to step on them. Now and then he crossed over. <laughs> now I think like crossing over with John Edward. You remember that show? No, I don't. He could speak to like Oh, he dead spoke relatives. to the dead. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So uh, dead relatives who manager swear. had a woman in his employ who would readily engage in the banter and then complain. Oh, those we, are my favorites. We've all dealt with that issue as personal ba- boundaries tend to be flexible rather than rigid. The comments could be taken as joking. She would ask things such as, guess what color thong I'm wearing? Until the inevitable response with an invitation such as, prove to me I guessed wrong. We coached both parties on the concept of not having potentially provocative banter. We were not successful in the long term. We never are. We never are, or else you wouldn't be on the podcast. All right. One day, she complained she was stocking shelves in the warehouse near the manager's desk. He allegedly told her, I would come help you, but I can't get up because I have a heart on. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a great excuse to get out of work. Yeah. I interviewed the manager and confronted him with the allegation. His response was, that's not a direct quote. No. My follow-up question was along the lines of, is it possible your comment could be interpreted to mean the same thing? I got a vague, mumbling, maybe. (laughs) In response to the not surprising charge of sexual harassment, the EEOC granted the woman a right to sue notice, so she did. During his deposition, the now former manager denied the statement. As the employer's representative, I had the unenviable position of sitting through all the depositions. They were entertaining, to say the least. I I, I don't know why that's unenviable. No. If they were entertaining. Yeah. We settled out of court for a very reasonable sum. During all those hours with the lawyers and stenographer, though, uh, we started to get a wee bit punchy. The stenographer indicated she liked her job because she didn't have to worry about it after hours. When she was done, she was done. I could not help myself when I empathized with her. I simply said, one of these days, sorry, one of these days, I want a job where my biggest concern is whether or not hard on has a hyphen. <laughs> Thank you, Nellie from Nebraska. Thank you. That was a good story. But we still have an unresolved issue here. Does it have a hyphen? I think it does. I have seen it as two separate words, no hyphen, two separate words, hyphenated. I've also seen it as one word. Oh, I've seen it all the different ways. Yeah. I, I prefer the hyphen, hyphen approach. Hard Absolutely. hyphen on. Yeah. When in doubt, erection. That could work too. Or boner. Yeah. I, I'm not going to play that game. Would. I, I'm still not playing that game. You're not pl- Come on, man. It's what people tune in for, yeah. to get synonyms for erection. Yeah, that's stiffy. That's welcome to the hostile work environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for listening. As always, we appreciate it. Not as much as we appreciate your patronage on Patreon. Is Patreon hyphenated, Mark? No, no. It is all one word. If you go to www.patreon.com slash HWE, you can find our Patreon campaign. You can participate. You can get access to special content that only Patreon participants can get. Um, You can also give us money. Yeah. No pressure. No pressure. Um, But you should do it. We need some stories. How do they give us stories? Stories at hwepodcast.com. That's an email address. Pretty easy email address to remember. Yeah. 
Follow um, us on Twitter. Twitter at HWE Podcast. And I'm at Salad Pants. And I'm at nothing. Well, no, you are at HWE Podcast. You are the Twitter account for the podcast. I am the, I am the official Twitter account podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Of the that, podcast. Of the, that made no sense. Yeah, that didn't really work. Yeah, I edited it out. Anyway. Um, um, and we spoke about this last episode, but very briefly, uh, October 24th, we will be recording a live episode. For PERMA. For PERMA. I want to call them PHARMA, but pharma, I know that's not yeah, it. No, it's it's really PERMA. PERMA. Uh, at their member appreciation event. So if you're in Portland, please uh, attend. And then uh, in November, what date? Uh, November 8th, we will be up in Seattle. Yeah. The Northwest the Emerald Risk, City. The Northwest Risk Enterprise Forum Conference. Yep. Uh, and we will be doing uh, a recording there as well. We will. Yeah, we're going to record both shows. We're going to run them in lieu of weekly episodes. It should be fun. Just like a big time podcast. Just like real podcasts. Yeah, we, we've it. hit the big time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can look for tickets on the website. No, you can't. Um, anyway, yeah. thanks. Oh, one last thing. Oh. I almost forgot. Every now and then we get a review that we really want to read because it reminds us that what we do is actually appreciated by somebody out there. And it's not just the two of us, you know entertaining one another so i want to get i want to read this review it's from somebody who signed it getting through my own hostile environment they write this show is awesome i actually was going through my own hostile work environment issues and was looking for something to help me get through well, I usually recommend vodka, but in this case, they listen to the podcast they say this we're better than vodka we're better than vodka I think you just named it. This show helped open my eyes to a lot of issues that needed to be brought to light, such as do you hyphenate hard on? Now we all know. So they are <laughs> lifesavers and do not even know it. Well, now we do know it. And thank you. Thanks again for taking the time out of your day to make these podcasts because somewhere out there they help people like me. Signed, stuck in a dying Illinois city. Thinking Joliet. Moline, uh, Moline could be dying. I don't know. Poor old Moline. Anyway, normal. normal. It's a great Illinois city. Yeah. Champagne, Urbana. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Message. We really do it appreciate it. We appreciate all our listeners, but we appreciate the ones that give us that kind of feedback even more. We appreciate the ones that give us money the most. We just appreciate everyone. Yeah. On that note, thanks for listening. Take care. We'll see you again next week. Bye now. Why don't you get a job for Chloe? What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. <laughs>